Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we'll be discussing some of the philosophic issues behind the intensifying conflict between Hamas and Israel. What are the moral issues at stake? What's fueling this seemingly intractable conflict? And what should the U.S.'s approach to it be? I'm Aaron Smith, a fellow at ARI, and I'm joined by my colleague, Alan Jurno, ARI senior fellow and author of What Justice Demands, America and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. Welcome, Ilan. Good to be with you, Aaron. Thanks. Yeah, and I've been reading a lot in the news reports over the past week about what looks like the start of a war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Can you give us a nutshell summary of what's going on? So starting a few days ago, I think it was Monday, there have been hundreds of rockets fired from the Gaza Strip, which is controlled by Islamist group Hamas, and it and its fighters and its other allies in, the, in that area, the other Islamist groups, are the ones responsible for firing these rockets on Israeli towns and homes and schools and, and buses. So that is the impetus for what's going on. That's the main uh, development. Now, what's what's new here, so this is not the first time this has happened. There have been similar rocket wars going back to 2007, 2006, 2012, 2008, 2009, 2014. And what's new here is that the number of rockets and their range is much greater. So the intensity of the attacks and the distance that the rockets can travel. So they're they're seemingly able to reach almost every part of uh, Israel. So that's a a new development. The other new feature here is that in addition to this rocket, uh, the exchange of rocket fire from Gaza into Israel and Israel's retaliation for these attacks with aerial bombardments, there are also uh, rioting in various towns in Israel led by, in some places, by Arab citizens and Arab uh, residents, and other places by Jewish uh, residents. So you're getting a a kind of... uh, civil unrest that is uh, coinciding with this. And I think it's, um, that is new because there hasn't been that level of civil unrest and and fighting for a long time. Uh, There's been remarkably little of that in many years. So that's the news as you would see it. Now, what I think is really important is to get, okay, these are the bare facts if you can actually distill them from a lot of the reporting, but what is actually going on here? Because the one way these facts are reported is Israel is firing into Gaza. Gaza is an open air prison. Here are the the victims in in Gaza and no wonder they're fighting back with rockets. That is an interpretation of those facts that I think is highly prejudiced and not at all uh, framed by the right kind of moral philosophic perspective. And I think that's what's key in understanding this issue. So the news reports are often slanted, which is not that surprising. And the way people come to think of it is influenced by certain moral ideas that are not acknowledged. Uh, And these are widely accepted moral ideas. And one of them is just, if you're the weaker party, you must have something on your side. You must be at least presumptively innocent and, and the victim. And if you're the stronger party, in this case, Israel is way stronger militarily, there's gotta be something wrong here. And this is the kind of view people who are not really knowledgeable, really gravitate to. Yeah, I want to ask about that because I want to come back to the issue of the moral perspective that's, in effect, it's the overlay 
uh, on how people interpret this issue. Um, I want to go back to the news uh, reporting uh, because um, you started by talking about uh, Hamas firing rockets at Israel, Israel retaliating. Um, the, the news reports I've been reading tell um, talk a bit more about some of the background as to what's going on in East Jerusalem um, in terms of um, I don't know what I've been reading is that there there are some families, some Palestinian families evicted from some homes, and this is a kind of a decades long legal battle in effect to try to figure out who owns these various bits of property or apartment buildings and so on. And there's an upcoming Supreme Court decision in Israel to decide on this case, and there's been some protests around this. And to what extent do you think that some of that background plays a role in? Uh, Hamas's response, because uh, they'll often paint it as, or paint it, uh, maybe it's prejudicing the way I put the question, but they're put it as this is a response to I don't know, something Israel does wrong in, in Jerusalem. Is that is that a pretense? Is there something to that? So there's certainly been a number of incidents that have created a certain kind of atmosphere in the country. And I think the situation you're describing in East Jerusalem where there's a dispute over the ownership of properties and the, who is entitled to be a tenant and who can reclaim the, the, the property, which goes back at least 60, 70 years and even longer, depending on which side you're speaking to. That is a really complicated situation. And I think there are real problems with the way some of the uh, Israeli groups that are behind the attempt to evict Palestinians in those, I think it's five or six properties, I think there's a real malign purpose behind what they're doing. I don't think one can really evaluate that conflict, which needs to be settled through the courts as a material trigger for what's happening with the rockets. Because there's, there's no scenario in which the attempted eviction, even if for wrong reasons, and I think there are likely wrong reasons, of these families would ever justify the kind of attack that is Hamas has launched uh, yet again. And the essential issue here is that Hamas, there's a known pattern in its, in its attack. So this kind of thing is, uh, you can observe it going back in either, in all the previous incidents that I described, going back to 2007, 2008, nine, all the cases in which it's launched these rocket attacks, there's always some concrete event that is presented as a trigger. This is the one red line that was crossed and we are now, we Hamas are now the ones truly defending Jerusalem, the holy site. We're the ones truly fighting to reclaim the land that was stolen from us. And all of these in my assessment, and I, there's more argument that is needed to justify this. And I recommend people take a look at the book. These are all pretexts. And you see the same pattern going back two decades. There was a uh, one of the biggest eruptions of street violence and, and um, practically a war in 2002, uh, where there was a spate of suicide bombings and, and uh, all kinds of horrible, horrible attacks. The pretext for that was an Israeli politician walked across the plaza in front of one of the holy sites of Muslims. This was treated as an attempt by Israel to take it over, and it was presented that way. And that was seen, that was presented as the, the, uh, the, the trigger that justified all the violence. And it was certainly not anything like that. Even if you, even if you think that the politician in question should not have been there, which is questionable, 
there is no way in which his presence there was really uh, the trigger. And the other thing to keep in mind here is when you hear a story that presents this current war as there's uh, a, a real estate or land dispute in East Jerusalem, there's rioting around that, there's real civil unrest about the decision that's, that's pending in the courts, and therefore they're starting to shoot rockets from Gaza. Think about what it takes and how many years of work it takes to prepare upwards of 1,500 rockets ready to fire. It's not something you do overnight. And in fact, this has been something that Hamas has been working on for a long time, building new rockets, getting know-how from Iran. This is something they're publicly and proudly announcing, building tunnels to smuggle materials. In fact, some of the rockets they're shooting are recycled from Israeli rockets from previous conflicts that they've been working on. They've been stripping pipework from plumbing in order to create new rockets. So this is not something you do. You get angry on Monday or on Tuesday, you start a rocket war that sends hundreds and hundreds of rockets per day. So there's a way in which the, the story is, there's an incommensurateness in, in terms of what's actually happening, the scale of the dispute over this land issue. And then the, the the attempted to kill hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people using rockets. So I think that one should be, you should be really skeptical when you hear an account like that and question the, uh, the way this is framed, because I think that, that kind of framing is exactly the way that Hamas, which is an Islamist group that seeks to dominate its own people, that's created an authoritarian religious regime that tramples individual rights, encourages its own people to become so-called martyrs for the cause. It has a history of engineering suicide attacks. When you hear that yeah, I, group I, tell you that I, it's about a land dispute, you have to question, these are not people who are gonna go to the barricades for individual rights. They're going to the barricades because they wanna kill people. Yeah, I wanna ask you more about that, about the, the nature of Hamas. I mean, you've written about this um, because I think for many people when they read uh, about the latest development in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and this is just the latest one, um, partly because of the reporting, partly because of the complexities of the issue. To a lot of people, they look on events like this and they think, well, I mean, there's always wrongs and grievances on both sides, and there's no way to really uh, sort out who's right or wrong. Uh, and then some, you know, simply divide on a kind of a pro-Israeli pro view uh, versus a pro-Palestinian view. Or other people simply say, well, it doesn't make sense to be pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian. You've got to find some kind of a middle ground, compromises, some form of compromise between the two has to be the right solution. And you've written about this and, and have a perspective on it. Like, how do you think about how to judge uh, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how to form a judgment, how, an assessment about this that doesn't simply mire you in the complexities of, well, this housing, it's a lot of the details which are complicated to sort out. I think the, the short answer is one should be trying to form a judgment. I think the attempt that some people make to just throw their hands up in the air and say, this is impossible, I'm just gonna find the middle road, I'm gonna to try to find a compromise. That is a position, that is a moral, posi a moral judgment implicitly that you're not going to judge and you don't think it's important to reach a judgment. And in effect, I, th I think that has been the history of the attempts to solve this conflict is to treat both sides as morally gray at, at best. And we're just going to find a way to thread a needle between the two. And, and there's some sort of compromise that you can reach 
that is not actually a reasonable position. It is destructive and it's, it's the abdication of moral judgment. So then the question is, if, if the, and I think this is gonna <laughs> upset a lot of people because this is a, a very common and favorable, people find it very favorable, you can compromise with anybody. And the answer is, no, you cannot. You have to really assess who it is you're dealing with and do you have common ground? Is there some commonly shared values? And part of what I argue in the book and, and elsewhere when I've discussed this issue is there is no such common ground between the two adversaries. So the question then turns to, well, if you are gonna make a moral judgment, what does it look like? Do you then cling to one side or the other for tribal reasons, ethnic reasons, religious reasons? And I think a lot of the debate around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict just is that kind of tribal thinking of, well, I'm a Jew, I'm gonna side with Israel, or I'm a Muslim, I'm gonna side with the Palestinians. And that's not moral thinking either. That is really the abandonment of moral thinking in another form. So I really don't like using the term pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian because I think both of those are putting together groups that you can't treat as a group like that. So there are Israelis who are now riding in the streets and trying to lynch Arab citizens. They're bar barbarians. They should not be endorsed. They're not at all what anyone who believes in freedom and individual rights should, should look up to. Likewise, in the Palestinian side, I think Hamas is, is morally reprehensible, it's beneath contempt, and so are all the Palestinians who follow them. But you can't treat every single Palestinian as automatically aligned with Hamas or even lesser groups within that area. And I think the reality is that there are Palestinians who would like to live in freedom, and they are the first victims of the Palestinian movement. So in effect, you it's wrong to think you're anti-Palestinian. You should be concerned with the fate of individuals, not collectives. And you should be on the side of the principle of freedom, not any particular group based on some ethnicity or some religion. So couple who are who so in these groups and stand for the people who want freedom, whether they're in Israel, and I think most Israelis want to live in freedom and peace. I, I think that's well established. And there's whatever Palestinians really don't want to live under Hamas or their other rival factions, and they are also victims. So we should stand for those who want a better life and genuinely understand what freedom looks like, not align with some collective on either side. Yeah, in, in, in that vein uh, about not aligning with collectives, we got a question on YouTube that's relevant to this. Uh, why did you choose the title Israel Hamas and not Jews versus Muslims or something? Because I think it is a, a conflict between two regimes. It's Israel, which is the, the state that has control over the territory that we, just, we designated as, as Israel, and Hamas, which is a regime, even if it's not officially recognized by many countries as a country, it's been ruling Gaza as a, as a quasi-state for since 2007. So I think that's a helpful way of distinguishing what's going on because it is the military of Israel versus Hamas and its allies. Now, I think it's then it's really important to get that the, it, it so happens that most of the people who live under Hamas are Muslims. There are not many Christians left under Hamas rule. They're not very welcome, but it's not useful to think of them 
the, the people in those areas primarily by the religion that they are belonging to, unless you understand that to mean that they choose to follow Hamas, because not all Muslims choose to follow Hamas, and some of them do not want it. So I don't think that's the primary way of thinking about this. That's a, another layer of thinking about who are the followers and supporters. And likewise, Israel is, is self-described as a Jewish country, and the majority of its population are Jews, at least self-described Jews. And because there's a question of what that really looks like and what that means. But that doesn't exhaust who it is that Israel is a country for. So some of the victims of the fighting have been Arab citizens of Israel. And I don't happen to know what religion they are. It does not really relevant what religion they are. And if they have any religion, so I think some of them are atheists. So the issue is not primarily what is their religious identity. It's which regime they, they are part of or that they support. Now, if, if part of the question here is asking, is religion important in the conflict? Is it a way of understanding what's going on? I think it is. It's definitely important in understanding the Palestinian movement and Palestinian society, both in the West Bank parts and in the Gaza Strip. And it's also centrally important to understanding what Israel is and, and its own kind of challenges, because I think religion is a, a weakness in Israel, that there's not enough of a separation between religion and state in Israel. I think that's one of the flaws in that society. And it's, it's, it's a big source of friction within Israeli society between the predominantly secular and atheist citizens and those who are highly religious Jews who are in many cases willing to, to go and take violent action against those they regard as race enemies. And so th those people are reprehensible. So I think it's important to think about religion, but it's not the primary in the sense of what is happening in this, in this fighting, in this conflict right now. Yeah, I mean, jump in, because you, you, you mentioned that uh, Hamas is beneath contempt and you referred to the regime uh, in Gaza uh, as a quasi-state. Um, so how, I mean, how do you compare the, I mean, how would you compare these as, as regimes, whether it's a quasi regime or a, a legitimate regime between when you're looking broadly at uh, whether it's the, it's, it's Hamas in Gaza uh, or it's the Palestinian authority versus Israel? How do you think about these when you're thinking about the, the basic political um, character? of the, uh, the, the regimes or quasi-regimes uh, ruling over the Palestinians versus Israel? How would you, in, on what kind of essential way would you distinguish the two and in, in a way that helps us think more clearly about how to evaluate the two? The principle of individual rights, I think, is the, the essential issue here. And, with, and that's the standard by which to judge any regime, whether in the Middle East, in North America, in Europe, it's a universal principle. And it, the, the way to think about how countries stand and what their moral standing is, is to ask how well or not do they, rep do they respect the principle of individual rights. And between Israel and Hamas, or even Israel and the Palestinian Authority, which is yet another political entity in another part of the Palestinian territory, there's a night and day moral difference. Israel actually has a rule of law system. It has protection for individual rights. And it has that, has had that for decades. It's not a new feature. It's, it's essential to its uh, development and growth and progress. 
And as a result, it has become a real dynamo for human progress, the standard of living, the people's ability to thrive and their ability to stop businesses and the innovation that you see springing out of Israel. It's, a, it's sort of a second Silicon Valley in the Middle East. And that is a huge, it's a real achievement to, to create a society where people have that degree of freedom. Does Israel also have significant amounts of regulation and controls and, and, and rules and regulations that violate individual rights? Yes, it does just as the United States and Canada, United Kingdom have this kind of mixture of real respect for individual rights as a, as a primary, and then many, many ways in which that's compromised. Now, so I think if you, if you think the United States is a moral country, and I certainly do, and this is a reason I emigrated here, I wanted to live in this country because I, I really admire the principle on which it's founded and all the opportunities it's offered me. If you recognize, the United States, United Kingdom as free societies. Israel is on par with those for the same reasons, for, and even with all the flaws, and we can spend three episodes talking about the flaws in Israel. I spent a lot of time on that in the book. By contrast with all of that, what you see in Gaza is a, a small version of what is endemic in the Middle East, which is a theocracy or a would-be theocracy with elements of authoritarianism, so it's, a, it's a, a regime that it tyrannizes its own people. It, it, the stories about the way Hamas treats its own followers, whether it's not only when it uses them as human shields, or not only when it stores weapons under their homes and in their neighborhoods and in their schools, even outside of those contexts, it's a regime that has no respect for the individual, no respect for their, for their mind, for their individual freedom of choice, what they want to believe. It's, it controls what they try to what they believe. It has thought control in the schools. There is no freedom of speech under Hamas. That's a joke. I mean, if you criticize the the Hamas regime, you you might be sent to jail. You might just be have a bullet put in your head in the street. Uh, there are multiple security forces. There's nothing even resembling the rule of law. If you fall afoul of whoever's controlling your neighborhood, Allah help you. Right? There is really no freedom in. Hamas's regime. And the whole idea of Hamas is this is just a step towards the full realization of their political ideal, which they've spelled out in their founding documents and multiple statements, which is a fully totalitarian vision of religious rule. Now, they haven't fully got there, and there's all kinds of tactical reasons they haven't made strides further toward that role, but that's really where they're heading. So when you have on one side a basically free society that enables human beings of any religion, any race, to be part of government, to rule, to, to be full participants in civil society. When you have that kind of freedom on one side in Israel, and you have a warlike, a militant regime that is out to destroy a free society, and, and in the process, trampling the rights of its own people, I think the moral difference there is fundamental. And it's, it, we ignore it at our peril. And that's a, that's a big thrust of the book. It's that this is a way to think not only about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the one that we're seeing now between Israel and Hamas. It's, it's, a, it's a principled way of understanding the Middle East and sorting out America's interests in that area. So to me, that question of how do you think about the two sides, it really comes down to the principle of individual freedom and that as a, as a yardstick for measuring. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I want to draw a bit of a contrast because what you've said is when you 
look on and recognize the complexities of the situation uh, and a lot of the historical issues and so on. When you, you step back, so to speak, and, and have a wider perspective on the issue, if you look at it from the principle of individual rights about the basic nature of the kind of regimes that A, they represent and B, they want to become uh, or are examples of, um, it's that's how you look at it, it's the perspective from which you look at it. Um, I was, <laughs> I saw a video, uh, uh, who was this, uh, Trevor Noah, I think this was on the Daily Show. And he was basically saying that, uh, he said, yeah, these issues are really complex. They're hard to evaluate. I can't possibly do this in a short video. Wouldn't even try. Um, but when, when he says, when I stand back, um, I, I, what I see is a stronger, more powerful, more capable party and a weaker, poorer, far less capable party. And these, they're in a dispute and basically saying that, you know, uh, Israel should back down, soften its response, turn the other cheek, in effect, because it's stronger, because it's more capable, because it's more able. And the Palestinian side being so much weaker, uh, they get, in effect, some kind of a mercy or some kind of sympathy or some kind of soft treatment. And so when he steps back, I think what he looks at is, this is coming from an altruist sort of perspective. In, in my view, it's because you're the stronger and the weaker, you don't get it, you can set aside the issue of justice. There's a certain sense in which they're setting aside the issue of justice and just looking who's strong, who's weak. And um, what do you think of that kind of perspective? I think it's incredibly destructive. It means irrational and therefore destructive. So I actually written an article in response to Trevor Noah because when I saw that video as well, it it to me, it crystallized the view that I see everywhere that I've responded to in my book, What Justice Demands. It's that, as you characterized it as an altruistic view, and, and I understand altruism in the way Ayn Rand conceptualizes it, which is that what's important in life is service to others. And there's nothing that you as an individual have, uh, you have no moral standing unless you serve others. And one aspect perspective is that if you have some value, it's your duty to give it up. And so those who achieve things, those who have standing, those who have strength, have a duty to serve those who don't, those who lack strength, those who lack achievement, those who are weaker and poorer. And there's no conception in this framework of why are you poor? Why are you suffering? What is the source of your misery? Have you had any role in creating it or are you completely innocent are you the victim of circumstances beyond your control, or are, such as someone who's in a car crash or something like that? Or are you in part or fully responsible for your fate, just as the person who achieves something is responsible for his achievement? So this, what I conceive of as altruism in this framework, it's, it's fully expressed in Trevor Noah's video, which we can link to in the show notes, and it is completely wrong. Because if you take this and you treat it as a principle that the, the stronger should hold back and let, and let the weaker side have its day. So he characterizes this as, well, look, if you have someone who's so much weaker than you, they can't defeat you. So think about how you respond. And the, the obvious implication he wants you to draw is you've got to hold back. You've got to dial back your response, maybe even do nothing. Okay, well, take that and use it as a principle. Okay, what does that really look like? If someone literally comes to a gunfight bearing a knife, what do you do with that? And so this is sort of the metaphorical thinking that, that helps the, the people use and that I think is so unhelpful. 
Well, on his premise, if you take this as a principle, it means that when 19 Islamists hijacked four planes 20 years ago and murdered 3,000 Americans on 9-11, they were much weaker than the United States, unquestionably. So does that mean you would, you would dare tell Americans, no, you got to hold back, you got to dial back. They can't really defeat you. Maybe you should just sit back and let them do more, which is really what the, the implication of his view is. And it's, it's not restricted to his view. It's not unique to him. It's this is what it looks like to think from the framework of altruism. And so this is essentially a philosophic failure. Now, I, so I think it's, it's irrational. And what does it really look like in practice? You don't have to look far. You don't need to create thought experiments to see what it looks like. You actually can look back, rewind the video to the previous rounds of Israel-Hamas rocket wars. So I mentioned several of them, right? There were, the last big one was 2014. And that was, I think there's a lot of casualties, a lot of destruction on both sides. How did that actually end? How did Israel conduct itself? Well, it followed this precept that because it's stronger, its responsibility was to dial back, not exactly turn the other cheek, because I don't think Israelis are willing to do that. It's not the right part of the Bible. But it's, it's the kind of idea of where we have a lot of pressure here. We're not going to do everything we can, because there's no question Israel can defeat Hamas and its allies. So what it did is it, it followed the precepts that the United States, the United Nations, and all the European allies have been pushing, and that Israel, in part, I think a lot of people in Israel agree with, which is that they have to hold back, they have to really pull their punches. To the extent that they, they went out of their way, and they always go out of their way, this is part of Israel's military doctrine, to give ample notice of attacks, warnings through text messages and phone banks and, and voicemails, and leaflets telling the people of Gaza, we're about to send, uh, we're about to knock your building down. You have, you have time to get out. This is the knock on the roof, as they call it. So it went out of its way to prevent harming civilians, which is, that's just the doctrine they follow. And you can question whether that's the right doctrine. But the essential thing that happened, the war didn't end in Hamas raising their white flag and bowing in defeat and, and asking for surrender. It did not end in anything like that. In fact, it, the way it ended is Israel degraded Hamas's capabilities. And it was kind of a ceasefire. And I mean, not a, I don't know how they officially classified it, but it was not a surrender. It was not a defeat. What actually happened after that? Well, Hamas dug new tunnels. They smuggled more weapons. They got more know-how from their allies in Iran and elsewhere. They rebuilt their arsenal. And here we are yet again with not as many rockets as before, but many, many more rockets than before and, and at a pace of attack much higher and with bigger range. So in effect, as one Israeli uh, official put it at the time, what they did as their strategy in 2014 was mow the lawn, right? What happens when you mow the lawn after a couple of weeks? The grass comes back. And in, in, to take the metaphor, literally, the Islamists rearmed, and they said they were going to do this. It's not like they're giving up on their fight. So if you go back to the kind of Trevor Noah view, the very conventional perspective that the strong have to give the weak an easier time of things, really be merciful, in effect, as you put it, what does that really look like? It, it really means a perpetual recurrence of a problem that is solvable 
but that you choose not to solve. And in effect, you're sacrificing your interests in so doing. So to me, the, the, that whole perspective, and it, it's fundamentally a philosophic failure, right? This is not just they've got the wrong tactics. It's, this is philosophy playing out in the battlefield. And it, this is the destructive consequences of following the conventional moral view, the altruistic view. It means sacrificing your own security because whether it's a gap of six years, whether it's a gap of seven years, whatever the interval between one round of fighting and the next, this is the predictable outcome of taking that principle seriously. It's really destructive. Yeah, and back to the you know the point where you're saying that this is just <clears throat> this is part of an ongoing series of actions. This is not something new. It's something new in the news, but it's not uh, really a new feature. And so, thanks to OK Stone uh, super chat uh, in YouTube, he says, uh, "Israel really seems to have successfully overcome the COVID nineteen pandemic. Now we're back to the usual programming." And I, I think that kind of is a way of expressing that the situation Israel finds itself in by not find, not seeking out victory uh, with its full capabilities, but rather basically existing in a permanent state of war uh, or the readiness to go to war, um, which seems to be an outgrowth of that sort of uh, approach that Trevor Noah was exemplifying in effect. Um, where do you see this going? I mean, because it looks like I just read some news today about this and it's, it seems to be further escalating and there's a question about whether ground troops are going in. I mean, yeah, I don't, do I you see anything new philosophically or intellectually, culturally on, on the ground there that looks like they would respond any differently than they have been responding for many years? I don't see any signs of that yet. I, um, my assumption is that they will. This will wind down in a similar pattern of some sort of negotiated set, uh, truce or, or ceasefire, with the usual. What usually follows that is a kind of uh, international focus on every crime that Israel is alleged to have committed in the conflict, and almost no consideration for the fact that Hamas is the initiator of this violence and that Hamas's conduct is, is not only uh, inconsistent with whatever conventional rules people follow during war, it's openly in violation of those conventions. So if Israel, you might say in, in some cases, it has been found to not live up to its own conduct principles in, in conflict, Hamas doesn't even try to do that. And so there's this whole imbalance that happens in the post-war period. So I don't have great expectations that there will be a, a different outcome. I would love to be surprised and that this actually is a step towards the right kind of resolution, which I talk about in the book, that there is a path here. And one of the things I try to impress upon people is, and this goes to the point you raised at the beginning, that it does, it is very complicated. And, it, and even in my book, I don't, it's not an exhaustive account of the conflict. It's an essentialized approach. So there are many threads I don't take on. But I think even if you get to the essentialized view of it, it's, it can be complicated and it's, it's definitely forbidding. But it is a mistake to think it's unsolvable. And I think the, the part of the reason people think it's unsolvable is they come to it from a philosophic perspective that is saturated with altruistic thinking that makes it seem like 
Well, we can't judge, and therefore we don't know who's in the right. And even if we did, who are we to say what should be what should happen? And certainly, the strong should not defeat the weak, regardless of who's in the morally morally right and morally wrong. So, that, to me, I think this is the what makes this conflict intractable is not a military balance of power or a question of tactics or even strategy. It's there's a philosophic deadlock that the people who are in the right are not willing to recognize what it takes to, to succeed and to stand firmly for their position. And the people who are in the wrong, knowingly in the wrong, who are carrying out, so this is the Islamists, they are malignant. They are purposely seeking to destroy things. They have arrogated to themselves. They have illicitly taken over the moral high ground. And this is one feature that is new, I think, in today's cultural atmosphere. To go to your question, Aaron, it's there is a greater intensity in our culture right now for looking at things from the, the perspective of uh, groups and privilege and uh, the idea that if you are um, claiming to stand for the rights of minorities, you are therefore necessarily in the right. And the Palestinian movement, which is distinct and importantly distinct from Palestinian people, has try to cloak itself in the mantle of civil rights. So there are people who make the case who are apologists for this movement, who will tell you that, that what the Palestinians are doing is really what the, the American civil rights movement was doing half a century ago. And that is a lie, but it's working. It, it, I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point where Israel is, is vilified even more than it was before, for not for any of its actual wrongs, but for wrongs that it hasn't committed or is wrongfully accused of. And the result is that I think this is all being seen through the perspective of a much more assertive and um, aggressive kind of conception of what it means for the weak to have their day in the sun irrespective of whether the, the weak party, in this case, the, the Palestinian movement, is in the morally right or in the morally wrong. And I think that is, that I think is different. And you see that in a lot of the chatter in social media. And I think some of the, a lot of the coverage I've been following, I have to say just one, one anecdote on this, Aaron. I've read about this subject for, for decades now and news reports and books and so forth. I happened to read a report from CNN and I'm just picking on CNN because this is the one that comes to mind. It's not unique to CNN. The way it was framed as Israel is attacking Gaza, and then six paragraphs later, this is in response to hundreds of attacks of rockets fired from Gaza into Israel. Now, that is a reversal of cause and effect. And that doesn't happen because the journalists showed up five minutes late and didn't see which way the rockets were going. This is not, it's not journalistic error. It's the facts being filtered through a particular kind of philosophic intellectual lens that distorts things. And that lens, one aspect of what goes into it is this perspective of altruism and that the, the weak are always have to be seen in the right or, and that, you, that whoever's in the stronger party cannot possibly be in the, in, in the right. And so this distortive lens is everywhere. And I think, the, the conflict is, uh, in people's minds, ever more confusing as a result of that. Okay, and 
I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you more questions, and we have more questions that were sent in, including from uh, Dave from the super chat. Thank you, Dave. Um, but I want to wrap up here and give uh, give the audience some resources to take a look out. Talk a bit about what we're doing next week, and um, you're going to be. I'll mention this, but you're going to be uh, joining. You know, at, what's it? Um, continuing the discussion on Clubhouse. But so let's let's put up some resources. Um, <clears throat> first of all, your your own book, What Justice Demands, America and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. I read this and found it really clarifying in partly, in part, well, not in part, I would think this is the essence, is because it helps you think through a very complicated system with a philosophic principle as a guide and in the way in which that really clarifies what you're doing. And somebody might agree or disagree with that perspective, but it's this is an example of what philosophy can do to clarify a really thorny issue and know how to sort out some of the complications and the details and the noise, so to speak, put it metaphorically, uh, from the essential issue. Um, and you mentioned uh, an article, you, I think you put this on Medium, and I'll, I think New Ideal uh, at ARI has also published this. It's called Stop Ignoring Justice in the Israel-Hamas War. Uh, so take a look at that if you're interested in the, the URL is bit.ly uh, slash uh, justice Israel. So if you're listening, that's an easier way to process that. Uh, so next week on the program, we're going to be having infectious disease expert Amesh Adalja. Uh, he'll be on the show to discuss the COVID vaccines and vaccine mandates. Uh, you can join us uh, today right after this episode where Alan's going to be continuing the discussion on Clubhouse. So just look for the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse. Uh, if, you, if you like this broadcast and you'd like to be able to follow us in the future, there's a few things you can do. If you're watching on YouTube, of course, you can subscribe to the channel, click the bell, and get notifications uh, for when we go live or we post new material. Uh, if you're, and if you and consider liking the episode and writing a comment in the comment section. If you're following on Facebook, also, you can consider liking the post or leaving us a comment there. We always appreciate that. Uh, if you have questions about today's material, or questions you'd like us to answer or ideas for uh, further podcasts, you can just send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. So that is all for today. Alon, thanks a lot for joining me on the discussion. And to all of you out there, feel free to join Alon on Clubhouse after the show. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.